When Tiberius Caesar retired to the Isle of Capri because he was sick of politics in Rome, including a few too many assassination attempts, to rule from that island for nearly a decade, he ruled through emissaries. That is, he brought into his life trusted confidants who he would send back with his instructions. And one of his closest confidants was his, if I get it this right, grandnephew, a man whose name you might recognize, like Tiberius, you might recognize that name, uh, a man named Caligula. Caligula is a fascinating character in history, I can tell you that, but he ends much worse than he begins. He begins very well. He begins as Tiberius' chosen emissary going back and forth between this paradisical island where all sorts of mythologies arise about what Tiberius did on his private island. You've heard these kinds of stories, haven't you? Uh, This private island, Caligula is going back and forth, and then he is managing the young court at Rome, and he's preparing to become emperor, because that's what Tiberius has done. He has adopted him as his heir, uh, grandson or great-grandson of Augustus, but it's all through marriage. There's actually no bloodline from any of these Caesars, male to male. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, Caligula is the heir, and he's managing this imperial court in Rome, uh, among whom uh, is a man named Agrippa, named for, I think, his grandmother Agrippina. There's a history to her whole family, but Agrippa is also the grandson of Herod the Great. And he's in Rome, in the court of Tiberius Caesar, under the friendship, very close friendship, of Caligula, because his father was murdered by Herod the Great. His father was Herod the Great's son, one of many sons whom Herod the Great murdered because he was afraid they were going to try to murder him. And so uh, Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, his mother, Bernice, when her husband, the son of Herod the Great, was killed by Herod the Great, fled to Rome with her baby, Agrippa. This is all like 10 BC, something like that. Uh, And uh, dates this morning, forgive me if I get them wrong. I'm going to try. I got a bunch of notes, but I'd rather not go too far off to get the dates right. Most dates are going to be within one to five years anyway. Historians argue about this stuff. But so, you know, Jesus isn't even born yet, but this guy Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great in Rome, being raised, you know, from the knee with Caligula to reign. That's going to be important later when we learn about Herod's doing things. And you think, which Herod is that? Because it's not the Herod who killed all the babies, and it's not the Herod who uh, was with Jesus on trial the night Jesus was betrayed. That's Herod the Great and Herod Antipas. We're going to deal with Herod Agrippa today, and then we're going to deal with Herod Agrippa II today also. And I won't expect you to remember all of this this morning. I really just want you to fall under the, uh, the spell of the story a little bit. We're going to look at some texts as we can, but I want you to have, uh, I want you to run toward the tomb with St. Paul. And we're we're on that path right now uh, because St. Paul's going to enter the story of the book of Acts in the midst of a lot of, oh, can we call it intrigue in Rome? So Caligula is going back and forth between this remote private party island of the emperor uh, doing things. And and the emperor is getting more and more suspicious of everybody. He's a really paranoid delusion act. Uh, He doesn't trust anyone. and, And it depends on which 
which historian you're going to listen to. They all debate, but here's the fun way the story goes. One time, uh, Caligula just takes a pillow. And while Tiberius is passed out, he just decides, I'm emperor now. Well, if that's what happened, however, uh, it happens in 37 AD. 36, 37 AD. Um, our story uh, with St. Paul uh, will begin with the murder of Stephen, right about 36, 37 AD. So uh, what happens when Caligula seizes control of the empire? What happens is everywhere and anywhere that somebody has been waiting for a moment to take just a little bit more power, they take a little bit more power. And you better believe there's a group right down in Jerusalem waiting for the moment for Rome to take their eye off of Mount Zion so they can take a little more power. They're called the Sanhedrin. And they've been waiting for this moment when word comes that the empire is kind of up in the air. It's probably Caligula, but someone said he murdered him. Will it be a trial? You know, they don't know what's going to happen next. And at the current time, their ruler, Pontius Pilate, is actually out of the picture. He just got fired like six months ago. By Caligula, who's not yet emperor. But he fires Pontius Pilate. He appoints a guy named Marcellus who makes no mark on history. He has almost no impact on what's going to happen next. But Caligula also sends his good friend, Herod Agrippa I, and gives him a small portion compared to the governor, but a small portion of land to reign over to prove himself. And kind of forwarding ahead in the story a little bit, between 37 and 41 A.D., uh, Herod Agrippa I is going to take over the entire place. Remember, he's been trained for this with Caligula from birth. He's a Roman Herodian, trained in the political courts, the strategies, everything. He's a politician's politician. And piece by piece, he takes as much land as Herod the Great ever had to the point where he's going to now rule over Tyre and Sidon as well. And they welcome him and then God kills him that day. That's the story you just heard last week. When Peter was put in prison, right? That's this Herod the Great guy. That's 37 to 44. He's in uh, Judea and he's taking over the whole place and the Romans are ruling through him. But before he gets there and manages to have that kind of impact, well, Marcellus, this guy who's in name in charge, but nobody really thinks he's in charge, the Sanhedrin's going to seize power locally. They are also in a debate between themselves over whether or not Jesus Christ is risen from the dead because, well, Nicodemus kind of believes it, right? So does Joseph of Arimathea. These are guys with influence and power. And yet uh, Annas, the former high priest, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and um, Jonathan ben Annas, the brother-in-law of Caiaphas, which makes him the son of Annas, this family that was in charge of the court when Jesus was murdered as an innocent man, they're highly invested in putting an end to Christianity as fast as possible by any means. And so while the Sanhedrin is debating about things, Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Roman and a Jew trained to lead the Jews as Hellenists into, I don't know, the next era. He's preparing for it. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. They give him charge of a couple of sets of guards and tell him to make sure that this preaching in Solomon's portico gets put to an end. That starts, well, Acts chapter 8, where we find that 
The crowd is stoning Stephen, the first non-apostle preacher martyr to death. And Saul of Tarsus is giving his approval. I want you to put yourself in Saul's mind for just a moment. Saul is not the bad guy in his mind. Saul's Captain America in his mind. Saul's saving the country in his mind. Saul's going to make it all work. He's the white hat of white hats. But in his personal inner life, I will guarantee you there's very little peace. I would suggest to you that the primary emotions he experiences are fear, anger, and hatred. And that the madness of that world in which all of his elders aren't smart enough and they need to move more fast is the world in which, uh, you know, he's going to find himself the enemy of God. And you know how the story goes, right? Uh, We're not going to spend a lot of time on on details here that, let's see, I think we don't even need those per se. Um, But he, after overseeing uh, Stephen's death, uh, he then begins to persecute the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, don't worry about turning there just yet unless you really want to. It says, then, this is after the murder of Stephen, Saul Still breathing threats and murder. That's his life. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He hates Christians. Went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he may, uh, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Um, I am reading from my New King James today to try to keep it all straight in my head. So, If your translation doesn't line up, by the way, that's why. Uh, So breathing threats and murder, arresting everybody in Jerusalem. All the Christians are fleeing Jerusalem except the most steadfast. And they, the apostles, are in hiding. And he gets uh, letters of writ to go and arrest more people in in Damascus, which, you know, normally I would read that. And like, oh, okay, to Damascus. He went to Damascus. But as I was looking, I said, why Damascus? And so to help you ask that question a little, I've got these maps in the, in the pew for you this week. We did some, some work with the church office and volunteer. And uh, the, the one that's smaller or really bigger, not the one where you see like a whole lot, the one that's zoomed in in Cyprus is really big on it right there. Uh, the real reason this map is here today is I just want you to find Jerusalem and Damascus on that map. And I want you to see how far Damascus is past the Sea of Galilee. Can you find the Sea of Galilee? It's not marked. Right? You should always be able to find Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, and, and the Dead Sea on a map, right? Uh, if you see that. If, if you don't, ask someone near you. I'm sure they'll show you. Um, so look how far north and east Damascus is. Uh, that is not uh, Jewish territory. <laughs> There's Jewish people there. Don't get me wrong. They have influence. But, but that's Syria is what that is. That's a different country, region, kingdom, province of Rome. Uh, so he could have gone to Caesarea. It's not there in the map, but it's south of Tyre. He could have gone to Tyre. Uh, uh, he could have gone to Antioch, where, in fact, we know a lot of Christians are going to Antioch, um, which is not on this particular map. I believe uh, that map is uh, on the on the backside. We'll look at Antioch later. But instead, he goes to Damascus. Why? Why is that? Um, there's not even necessarily a Christian group there. Well, it's because it's a power center for the whole area. So Christianity might trickle up to Galilee. But it's eventually going to get to Damascus. And what Paul's doing is he's doing an end around. He's going to go put a bulwark of defensive persecution on the outside of the box to trap the Christian and his movement inside Jewish territory. So that as they gain control, they can make sure it never goes anywhere ever again. That's what he's doing. 
right? The guy's pretty smart. Uh, this is, of course, uh, when he is uh, knocked off his horse by the beam of light and Jesus talks to him. We're not going to go into that, but he ends up blind inside of Damascus, having had Jesus tell him, yeah, you're, you're going to change now. That is a pretty cool moment, his conversion. Uh, also a pretty cool moment. There's a man in uh, Damascus who is a Christian who receives a vision. His name's Ananias. The vision says, hey, go talk to Saul of Tarsus. And uh, Ananias is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And, and you have to put yourself in Jonah's shoes a little bit, or maybe, can you imagine the worst living politician you can think of? The one you dis- actually hate because you think they want to destroy our country? And you get a vision from God, go, go talk to that guy. Right? Um, it's hard to put ourselves in Ananias' shoes. How this, Paul's Hitler, right? Like, that's the only way I can talk about the way we hate people the way they hated Paul is Hitler. Huh? That's who he is to them. He's a murderer. Go talk to him. He goes and he talks to him. Um, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias goes. Uh, he has the scales fall from his eyes. He gets baptized. He eats food and drink and so forth. Um, from there, uh, the, the history gets interesting, though, because uh, what we know is a couple of things happen for certain. He preaches Christ risen in Damascus. Uh, amongst the Christians that are there, but also amongst the Jews, to the point that there's a murder plot against him, and they try to kill him. And so he has to escape the city by going through a window in the wall in a basket at night and being lit down to escape. This guy's life is already a life you don't want, right? Like escaping through baskets and windows. Great movie. Terrible life, right? Maybe. Maybe it's the other way around. In any case, he escapes from the basket. We also know that he spends some amount of time in what he calls Arabia in the book of Galatians. Uh, This is uh, the Nia something something kingdom. There's a king over there, and this king actually really hates Paul by the end of his three years. We know that from the end of 2 Corinthians. (laughs) Or this king is actually trying to have Paul gotten rid of. Uh, So whatever Paul does in Arabia is not just sit quietly. Uh, <laughs> he manages to talk somehow, some way I would, I would suggest about the resurrection of Jesus. The question is, does he spend time in Damascus, escape to Arabia, and then go to Jerusalem to meet the apostles three years later? Or does he uh, preach in Damascus, escape from Damascus, go to Arabia, come back to Damascus, spend a year in Damascus, and then go down to Jerusalem? You pick your favorite. Three years pass. That's kind of key. He leaves Jerusalem, having driven all the Christians out, going to Damascus with letters of writ to arrest the rest of them, and three years pass. And Solomon's porch is still going, right? Christians are starting to be converted from amongst the local Jews. Christians are coming back to the city who had fled before, right? That kind of thing's taking place. Um, And his visit then uh, to, uh, to the Jerusalem Jews, you might imagine his first time going down there and be like, hey guys, I'm a Christian. Like that didn't go easily. You know, guess who's coming to dinner? Really? Um, very much. Uh, and, and in fact, they won't meet with him. The apostles won't meet with him because they, they're in hiding, right? <laughs> like they're going to get arrested. And this is the guy who, I mean, you've heard about like psyops and undercover. Three years ain't that much to hide undercover to overturn something. So why would they trust him? Um, but Barnabas enters the story here. Barnabas, who's known for his preaching, his encouragement, that's actually his name. Uh, he uh, goes to the apostles and says, look, I've been with this guy in Damascus. This guy is the real deal. They meet. 
They talk. It takes about 15 days, if I think, that he's there. He's not there very long. Um, uh, and then uh, because <laughs> while he's waiting to meet with the apostles, he decides not to talk to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. That, that, he knows that's not going to work out too well. Um, but what he does, he goes to the Greek Jews that are in the area for festivals, right? So people who've traveled from the diaspora to do their like, once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage, but are mainly Greeks that have like a Hebrew Bible in their basement or something. You know, they, they know Jewish customs, but they're not going to be reading the Hebrew Bible. Um, they're going to be in the Greek Bible. He goes to them, and, and within 15 days, they're going to kill him. These are like vacationers. They hate him so much. Why? Jesus has risen from the dead. The apostles take him and make him leave. They put him on a boat. <laughs> they put him on a boat go home he goes back to tarsus his home where he's from and he's there for a good year or two something like that uh, maybe a little more here's the lesson i pulled out of this so now paul has been converted to christianity for five six seven years he hasn't planted a single church no one wants him to preach when he does that's a long time out of season you ask me that's a long time not feeling like you're doing the right thing. He keeps going, though, wherever he is. Who knows? In Tarsus, is he talking to his mom every day trying to convert her? I don't know. But story goes on. Christians who've landed in Antioch, let's find Antioch on that other map. Okay, so flip the map over and just find in the bottom right corner of Judea and Jerusalem. And the arrow goes right up and points to Antioch. You can see that's much further. It's past Syria, north of the island of Cyprus. And really, before you would head into Asia Minor, Antioch was a major hub of trade uh, in the day, a very metropolitan city. And it is where many Jewish Christians end up after the persecutions of Saul and Herod. And so the church there thrives, particularly among Hellenists. Again, this is these Greek Jews or Jewish Greeks, right? Whatever you want to say it. Um, not amongst the Pharisees that have established a synagogue there, but amongst the, the Greek-speaking, Greek-acting, Greek culture-like Jews, Christianity is starting to, to explode. And in fact, I'm going to read uh, some of this section to you here. Um, uh, chapter 11, uh, 19 through 25, just a couple of verses uh, where it says, now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. There's Antioch. Preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, again, that's Greek Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, we're going to talk more about Antioch next week, actually. But for the moment, here's the thing. It's going well. Barnabas, head pastor, says, you know that guy who likes talking to Hellenists? Well, these Hellenists want to hear it. Maybe I'll grab him, bring him in. They do some good work, and the story goes on. But now Saul, named Paul, a Greek name, 
um, is, uh, is ministering in Antioch. Uh, the story is quite fascinating from here. We'll, we'll fast forward it a little bit, but amongst them in this early time of the church, prophecy is still alive. It's one of the gifts of the spirit to show that Christianity was distinct from Judaism. And a man named Agabus foretells that there's going to be a time of famine and trial, that hard years are coming. And the church in Antioch, a metropolitan church, a wealthy church, decides to start saving up money to send it down to Jerusalem for the sake of the poor uh, when this famine that's prophesied takes place. And this famine does take place over the next two or three years. And it's probably about three years later that Barnabas and Paul are sent down to Jerusalem to bring this gift to uh, the Jerusalem church. Now, I can't promise you that this is the right timeline. Like I said, the dates are sometimes one or two years away, but golly, it sure looks like they arrived just in time for Peter to get put in prison by Agrippa. Like Paul's there to watch it, but he's not in it at all. He's there when, well, when Peter, is he in the house when Peter comes and says, I'm free and the door is open and shut in his face? I don't know, but they're there during those times. And that's the story that pops up right next as they're down there in Jerusalem. And then after all of that event, at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, it says Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. That is the deliverance of the gift. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Uh, we also know that Peter will end up in Antioch shortly after this. Remember how he ascends out of the book of Acts? Well, He'll, he'll go to Rome eventually, but he ends up in Antioch with Paul for, for a little while uh, following all of this event. But then what happens in Antioch, chapter 13, I'm not going to read it here, but I'll tell you. Uh, they, in prayer together with a whole kind of new level of Christianity in the sense that there are people who are not Jews uh, that are Christians in this group now. This is a new thing. No one's quite sure what to do with this yet for them, right? Um, they are praying and they receive a prophecy, a vision, uh, set apart Barnabas and Saul, send them out to the Gentiles to preach the resurrection of Jesus. The church in Antioch is faithful and they do this. And this begins a series of what's called the missionary journeys of Paul. There are three of them. We have eight minutes left. <laughs> uh, so, how do these work out? Uh, Paul is initially going to keep a small circle with Barnabas. Uh, they're going to travel the coast, but they end up north and inland uh, on the map. Let's see here. I believe you can see. Um, uh, yes, uh, it, directly north of Cyprus, the island, you can see Antioch Pisidia. Um, that's as far as they get away. It's another Antioch, a different one. Um, Antioch Pisidia, then they come south of there and see a couple of little cities, Lystra, Ecolonium, and, and Derby. Um, the reason they go that route is actually they're going around a mountain range, which really impacts his journeys later. So if you like kind of the travel stuff, it's pretty cool. Um, but mainly what happens is he gets killed. <laughs> like he gets stoned to death. They, they, they throw rocks at him until he's dead, or so it seems. And then he gets up and, and continues on. Everywhere he goes, they chase him out. And yet Christians are left behind as he goes. Uh, they're rejoicing in this, even with the persecutions. And after, uh, let's see, is it how many years? After about three years or so, uh, four years, they end up uh, back in Antioch, just in time to find out that there's a great controversy over circumcision and whether or not Gentiles can be Christians without circumcision. And they're going to meet in Jerusalem to talk about it. So this is somewhere around 49 AD, 
So think about Jesus dies in 33, 16 years later, not a single book of the New Testament written, and they're going to have this council to decide whether we, most of us here, can even be Christians without surgery. Okay, um, You know how that story goes. Uh, Paul does play a role in it. Peter plays a role in it. But James kind of steps into leadership within the Jerusalem church. But now... Paul has the imprimatur, the letter from the council to go to the Gentiles, and they don't have to be circumcised. So Paul's gospel is affirmed um, and so forth. In fact, this is probably where Paul talks about in Galatians 1 and 2, he talks about the right hand of fellowship with James and, and stuff, and probably is taking place even uh, during this council and this time. Uh, but from there, uh, they bring this guy, um, John Mark, along on that first missionary journey that was in the reading. He had pulled back from that journey, didn't finish it with them. So now as Paul and Barnabas prepare to go out on their second journey, Barnabas wants to take Mark, who's his blood relation. Uh, and Paul's like, no, nah, this is only for the brave, right? Like, like, nope, 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 he can't go. So they, they part ways. And, and Barnabas goes one way, Paul goes another not necessarily in a fight, but they're just not going to travel together. And, and uh, Paul takes a new traveling partner from memory here. I believe that's Silas, uh, whose, whose name you might recognize. And on this second journey, they end up not only in Asia Minor, that's Turkey, right? So on your map, when I say Asia Minor, is that big thing sticking out like my hand is right here, right? Um, Asia Minor, they don't like it there, but you can see the arrows on this map. They go all the way into Macedonia, Macedon, which is the north part of Greece, right? Uh, Alexander the Great is the son of Philip of Macedon. Yeah? Uh, so Macedonia, there's Philippi, there's Thessalonica. Uh, all the way along, the same story holds. People believe, Paul preaches more, people get angry, they chase him away. And he doesn't seem to be liked anywhere except for Berea. We'll talk about Berea two weeks from now, actually. But he finally ends up down in Corinth, uh, and then he makes a pass through Ephesus on his way back to Antioch, mainly because he would just like to go back to Jerusalem for Passover. He does that uh, sometime around uh, 51, 52 AD. A couple years have passed with this second journey. Um, he, nothing goes wrong this time in Jerusalem. He leaves again on a third journey, basically makes it to Ephesus and stays there. He stays there for two and a half or three years. Um, in our late service today, we're going to try, I think, to look at the text of the time in Ephesus. That's what we're going to zoom in on for that extra 15 minutes. Um, so if you want that, you can find that on the website later this week to listen to. But he ends up in Ephesus for three years, teaching, instructing. Meanwhile, there's conflict in Corinth. You've maybe heard of that. There's a guy, Apollos, who's over there. He's not bad, but he's got a few missing pieces sometimes. And so before Paul gets to go back to Jerusalem, like he gets an itch to, two and a half years into teaching in Ephesus, he's itching to go back to uh, Jerusalem one more time. And then he wants to go to Rome and maybe to Spain, right? Lus uh, uh, Lusitania, they called Spain. Uh, and he wants to go further out, but first he's going to go back to Jerusalem. But before he can do that, he's got to visit Corinth. Uh, things are just so bad. After four letters, we have two of them. After four letters, he's going to visit and make sure things are amended. And you might remember, get a offering to take down to the saints in Jerusalem for the famine that apparently is still kind of impacting the poor down there. Um, so he does all of that and gets back to Jerusalem in 55 AD in June. He's there nine days. First day, he meets with James. From that day on, he's in a series of vows with three other guys. He's paying their way to get the Hellenistic, Pharisaic, 
Christian Jews to not think he's a bad guy. Uh, forget the Pharisees. Um, but the Pharisees, you know, they do think he's a bad guy. So after his seven days and proving that he believes the vows of Moses are of value as a tradition, he enters into the temple and summarily surrounded by a mob saved by Roman soldiers. And then you heard the letter that was read a little while ago, didn't you? Where was that again? That's going to be chapter. If I've had the bulletin in front of me, I get there. Chapter 23, uh, verse 26. The the guard who has charge of him that day discovers there's a murder plot against him. And at 3 a.m. at night, with squadrons of soldiers around him, they escort him out of Jerusalem to the coast where they maybe put him on a boat so that no one can kill him, so they can keep him in jail, so they can figure out what on earth is going on. Because this guy, Claudius Lysias, writing to the most excellent Governor Felix, uh, doesn't, doesn't know what's going on, and frankly, neither does Felix. Felix will hear the case within five days because the Pharisees do send a party up um, and uh, he doesn't want to decide the case. He wants Paul to just pay him a bribe and then he'll let Paul go. Paul doesn't want to do that. So uh, Felix just holds on to him for a while. Uh, Felix is one of these governors who, in the wake of Herod Agrippa I's death, are still trying to get control of what is basically a rebellion state in some ways, right? It's not like terrorism's going on, although It kind of is. That's what the zealots are. Uh, And so the governors are increasingly incompetent, uh, increasingly corrupt. Uh, As you'll see in the text, it would seem that Festus is a little better than Felix, um, but they just go downhill until finally uh, it is uh, Nero who will send his general Vespasian uh, to destroy Jerusalem in in 68, 69 AD. And we, we might almost get there, but probably not. Uh, in the story right now, right at our time. I want to get Paul to Rome, though. Uh, So uh, he's sent up to this guy, Felix. Felix wants the bribe. He sits for two years in jail. Uh, And then Felix is removed, and a new guy, Festus, is brought in, and Festus starts cleaning house. He learns about Paul's case on day three. He takes a week in Jerusalem to research the case. He comes back. The next day is the trial. And then shortly after that, he brings in Bernice and Agrippa II, right? The, nah, I won't even go into that story. Uh, it's fun, but I won't go into it. But he brings them in to sit counsel with Paul to decide whether or not he's guilty of anything. And in the midst of all of this story, though, Paul does something. He appeals to Caesar. He asks for Nero to be the judge of his case. And he actually knows. He knows who Caesar is. <laughs> so he, he knows he's asking for Nero. Well, Nero gets worse as he goes on. So this is still a little early in Nero's reign. And he, Nero's trying to clean things up. So uh, Paul then gets put onto a ship with Roman guard sent to Rome to be standing trial for being a Christian. Long story. 14 days at sea, shipwrecked on an island, bit by poisonous snakes. All sorts of stuff goes on, but he does end up in Rome. Two years later, he does have his case before Nero. Nero sets him free. That's about 60 AD. And uh, interestingly, by 65 AD, every apostle except Peter John and Paul are probably dead. Paul from, uh, well, do I have the note? We're out of time. Uh, Paul from 60 AD does get to Spain, tradition tells us. He gets all the way out to Spain. Um, Then he comes back down, spends time in Crete with Titus, probably around 
64, which is when Nero's burning Rome down. Around 65, he goes to Ephesus with Timothy before going up to northern Greece from like 66, 67. And then it's while Nero is at the Olympic Games in northern Greece around 67 that he knows about, I don't know, finds Paul, arrests him, takes him back to Rome. That same year, 67, 68, Nero has Peter executed by crucifixion and has Paul executed by having his head chopped off. Um, Nero will then have to deal with the rebellion of the Jewish state uh, and sending Vespasian uh, down there to deal with the Jews in 70 AD. Uh, wouldn't you know, uh, this is when Nero's losing his mind. and He's assassinated at this same time. That leads to a whole other era of Roman Empire and all sorts of fun stuff. But running with Paul toward the tomb, well, we got there. Okay, it's a little bit longer than normal. Uh, I want you to remember why we did this today. I wanted you to live in his shoes. And now I want you just to remember that this meal is the same holy meal he ate. This God, Jesus Christ, is the same holy king who guided him through all of that, saved him from every trial, and then the day that God had him killed, had him ready for it. That's all yours. That's all who Jesus is. That's all your anointing through your baptism into Christ. In Jesus' name.